0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton today.
0: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Wardard and Jennifer McQueen.
2: Here's Scott Thompson. It is
0: Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, lots going on. Uh, we're here, of course, of the horrific situation happening along the Gaza Strip, uh, with Israel retaliating for Hamas attacking Israel. And, um, at this point, the aid is still not getting through. It is stuck at a border in Egypt. And they're talking that tomorrow, by tomorrow, uh, hopefully that aid will go to people who need it the most. Also, uh, still, the blame game continues with uh, the hospital situation, and um, as more intelligence gets in and examines the site, whether it's from satellite or whatever, it appears that there was the, an explosion in the parking lot, so uh, the prime minister uh, immediately uh, uh kind of blamed uh, Israel for all of this and shouldn't be doing it. Uh, and uh, roughly, well, shortly after that, us president Biden is saying, well, the evidence shows that uh, this may not have come from Israel. It may have been have been a uh, wayward missile, uh, fired from inside the Gaza Strip. So uh, now the Prime Minister is simply stating the obvious and uh, meeting with uh, Caribbean officials on um, things that are not crisis related, which is probably what he does best. All right. Also, the big news, uh, Sarah Jama, uh, MPP for Hamilton Center, still in controversy over comments she made in regard to all of this. And I understand are still posted. Uh, NDP leader Merit Stiles. Uh, and by the way, we've tried to get hold of both both of these individuals with no luck uh, getting them on the show. You want to talk about the green belt? (laughs) They're there like that. But right now they're not uh, they're not chatting. And um, and and it looks like Sarah Jemma is threatening to sue Doug Ford over his comments uh, as both uh, conservatives and liberals uh, want an apology in the legislature. And uh, and remove the comment and so yeah MPP NDP MPP Sarah Jama threatening to serve Premier Doug Ford I don't know what threatening means with a libel lawsuit I guess unless he uh, well I'll read it to you uh, Global has learned over public statements that depicted Jama as having a history of anti-Semitism which Jama argues have harmed her reputation uh, Hamilton Center MPP Jama has been the center of the controversy at Queens Park after statements she made during the Israeli Hamas Moss conflict were slammed by members of the government who claimed the indicated support for the terrorist attack on October 7th. In her original statement, Jama said, we have seen the definition of apartheid in real time through the continued violation of human rights in Gaza through the use of white phosphorus chemicals uh, without a uh, the withholding of access to food, fuel, uh, and water and destruction of the only exit from Gaza that isn't controlled by the state of Israel uh, as the statement faced widespread con- uh, condemnation Ford issued a public statement calling it disturbing and demanding that she regis- uh, uh, res- resign from the legislature uh, saying Sarah jama has a long well documented history of anti-Semitism and Merritt Stiles has yet to hold Miss jama accountable for publicly supporting uh, the rape and murder of innocent jewish people on thursday ford's office was served with a cease and desist letter along with a notice that a statement of claim could be issued against the premier personally unless he retracts the comments and issues unequivocal apology issues an unequivocal apology so now she wants him to apl- uh, apologize for uh, uh what he said about her having to apologize for her statements. Uh, for a statement, uh, Ford's statement, the letter says, implied that Jama is racist towards Jewish people, symp- uh, sympathetic to terrorism, and unfit for office, uh, implies. Uh, these public statements have done and continue to do serious harm for Ms. Jama's reputation. The statement has not only uh, sent to members, but also the media, uh, and has been put on social media as well. Uh, and again, she's obtained a lawyer. She's also uh, stepped away says NDP leader Mar- Merritt Styles uh, to deal with personal issues but clearly that involves getting legal advice and trying to sue the premier so uh and then asked if uh if uh, Styles was asked if she knew about this and she didn't really give a uh, a solid answer on it saying that she um, she had heard that uh, she was not, meaning Jama, not happy with any of this and um, acknowledge the personal experience that Jama has failed. Uh, but anyway, uh, that being said, things are, are where they are and nobody knows uh, or we're still waiting for a uh, a comment or a news release or whatever from the head of the NDP, provincial NDP, that is Merritt Stiles. Uh, It was interesting while all of this was going on over the last couple of days and coming to a head, the NDP was issuing press release, news release after news release on everything from uh, releasing phone records, uh, Greenbelt, Ontario Place, whatever, just desperately trying to change the the channel. And now uh, being accused in the legislature, uh, JAMA is of hiding. So hopefully, uh, Uh, Either one will come forward and and explain what is going on and where we go from here in uh, what is really turning out to be a a very divisive situation. Uh, Anyway, we'll leave it at that. We'll see what happens. We're going to talk to an attorney on this as well and ask uh, suing the premier for something like this. Can others sue her? I don't know. We'll talk to a legal expert on all of that. Interesting uh, article on our Global News website, Competitiveness on a Clear Decline in Canada as Profits Rise. Competitive forces have been on the decline in Canada at the same time as profits and prices, uh, price markups are on the rise, says the Competition Bureau. Canada's watchdog, uh, competition watchdog on Thursday released a look. 20, uh, 2000 to 2020, it found competitive intensity, a metric for how hard... Businesses feel they need to compete against rivals in their industry faced a consistent and clear decline over that period. To talk more about all of this, decode it, tell us what it means. Doctor Ian Lee, with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Here now, Ian. Thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, thank you. So, how did we get here? How did we get to this low level of competition?
1: Uh, it's been a. Um, it's embedded. Uh, In the culture, I would argue, I've been teaching um, uh, business strategy for 35 years. And business strategy is how firms compete in the marketplace. And, you know, pricing and innovation, differentiation and research and development, all that stuff. And if you go back, and I actually talked to my students about this, and I'm not going to go back into deep history, I promise you. But if you go back and look at many different areas of the economy, we we Canadians have always had relationship about uh, competition. I mean, we think about it, we like it in the abstract. And yet when it comes down to the concrete, uh, we don't allow foreign banks to come into Canadian banking and, uh, and, uh, and buy a Canadian bank. We don't allow a foreign airline to come into Canada and fly across Canada picking up customers. No, we, we think that's terrible. As I've said to you in the past, we somehow think that if I fly on a foreign airline, I'm suddenly going to become German or or American, or I don't know, <laughs> Russian or something, which is preposterous, because I've flown all of those airlines and I don't speak a word of any other language except English. And we don't allow it in uh, telecom. You know, we don't allow any foreign uh, companies coming in. So uh, we've embedded um, restrictiveness um, to keep out foreigners, which reduces competition, because we don't particularly like it, certainly in some industries. And look at how... Ferocious was the attack against the free trade agreement back in 1993, when it was uh, 1987, 88, when it was first introduced. So uh, my point is, is that this um, ambivalence towards competition has been around for a long time. What's happened in the last 20 years in this report, and I did read it. Okay, I read the whole report. It's not that long. I mean, it was nothing in there that was radical or unusual. Was, I mean, a lot of this is the stuff I've been teaching for 35 years. And I'm not trying to say that they took it from me. All this is is basic intro to economics 101, you know, that you want competitive industry. If, if you want prices to come down, you competition, not less competition. You want more firms competing, not less firms. And what's happened in the last 20 years is there's been a lot of mergers mergers and acquisitions. And what has happened, and I'm a I'm a red meat, full red meat capitalist, by the way. So I'm not somebody who says, you know, let's nationalize companies and have the government running them because that's just a catastrophic disaster whenever they've done it. But I also deeply believe like Michael Porter, the strategy prophet Harvard, that you have to have competitive industries where the Competition Act is enforced aggressively to ensure the industry does not become too concentrated. That's the technical term for saying where well, there's only two or three firms in an industry because we've known for 300 years scott 300 years that an industry with only a small number of firms is far less competitive than an industry with dozens and dozens of firms because the when you have only a small number of firms they don't have to hustle they don't mm-hmm. have to compete you know they know that they'll lose a small percentage of their customers every year to one of the other two firms. And those two firms will lose an equal small number of customers to the other two firms. So there's a little game of musical chairs and they all keep their market share just where it is so they don't have to innovate. And the whole idea of innovation is is that you try to innovate to create a competitive advantage, to try to create a better mousetrap, a better iPhone, a better car, so that people will go and buy your product instead of the competitor. Well, if there's only three, two or three competitors, you don't have to do that anymore.
3: Hmm. And
1: so what's happened in the last 20 years is our industries have become more and more concentrated, which means more and more, there's fewer and fewer firms in every industry. And as a result, prices go up because there's less competition as a check and balance. And the for some of your listeners who may be saying, well, then obviously the government should step in, which is what the liberals are saying. And that's the last thing on planet Earth you want to do is the government to step in and intervene in the markets because that's the problem that is causing the problem. Mm. It's You want more competition, not governments choosing battery plants in Southern Ontario because they think that they're smarter than the market economy. And so, but there's lots, I'm sure your listeners would strongly disagree with me. So we've ended up with a much less competitive economy in the United States. And that's proved by all the productivity studies. And we make on average 15,000 less per person because we're less competitive. So we're paying for it
0: uh this all coming to the forefront in the mainstream because of where we are with affordability and specifically grocery prices ceos being called uh called on all of this brought together not enough competition is is that why we're talking about it now and what can governments do how do we change how do we fix
1: this well it is coming out now because of course the inflation has be made us is focused our minds it's focused our concentration and we've realized you know uh, and there's all kinds of stories, you know, in the media about how prices are cheaper, even allowing for the exchange rate on the dollar. I know that is somebody who travels to the States frequently. Gasoline, even after you do the exchange rate, I, I put it on my credit card. So I see what the price comes in to fill up my car in Canadian because it gets converted to Canadian on my credit card. And I'm filling up my car when I cross over to the border for less than I fill it up in Canada. Yeah, uh, I buy groceries right across the border at Ogdensburg, New York, one hour from Ottawa. And, you know, you can very, you know, you can actually say, okay, what is, you know, a kilo or a pound of chicken here, a boneless chicken compared to Ottawa. And believe me, it is cheaper even after you pay the exchange rate. It's 30 or 40% cheaper. So, okay. So what are things that can do? It's There's no quick fix here, Scott, but there are things they can do, but I'm not sure that the support is there in the Canadian public. We've got to open up the airline industry. We've got to open up the telecom industry. So we don't just have three companies that are exploiting us up the wazoo. We've got to open up and allow competition to come in. The idea that it's going to hurt our Canadian identity is just absolute (laughs) trash. And what is
0: the Canadian identity? Isn't the Canadian identity one of international? So, I mean, gee.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so the idea that, you know the idea that you're going to be less Canadian uh, because you're you're buying your cell phone, you're renting your cell phone service from a foreign company called ATT is preposterous. It's just silly. Or if the French come in with one of their telephone companies, the idea that I'm I don't know suddenly going to start speaking fluent French because I have a French cell, I have an account with a French telephone company is just nonsense. You know they're just companies that are providing goods and services. But we need more competition. And the other thing, very quickly, before I run out of time, is I agree with the Competition Bureau about giving more teeth that they can deny mergers where it will lead to increased concentration. Americans, that bastion of capitalism is going down that road. So are the Europeans, where the government will have the more authority to deny a, a large company from buying another company in the same industry that is going to reduce the number of competitors. Mm. We need more teeth and we need to stop mergers that lead to greater concentration.
0: Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott school of business, Carleton university as always Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well.
1: My pleasure, Scott.
0: Alright, we have talked about this uh, quite a bit and uh, obviously more so today as we find out that NDP MPP Sarah Jemma is threatening to serve Premier Doug Ford with a libel suit, suing him. Uh, Global News has learned over statements that depicted JAMA as having a history of anti-Semitism which JAMA argues have her uh, harmed her reputation uh, and of course uh, with the situation, the recent situation this certainly isn't the first time this has happened uh, Hamilton Center MPP Gemma has been at the center of the controversy at Queens Park after statements she made during the Israeli Hamas conflict that were slammed by members of the government who claimed they indicted support for uh, indicated support rather for the terrorist attack. Uh, now uh, asking for her to be censured until she apologizes and takes down the post that is being supported by conservatives as well as some liberals. Um, what's the legal ramification of all of this? Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer. And with us now, Ari, thank Thank you for the time hope you're well
4: great to be on with you scott in these very bizarre times
0: it is very odd ari and you know we've been reaching out to both jama and Merritt styles trying to get comments on this and of course there's nothing uh we understand that uh, the mpp has stepped aside perhaps for legal advice i don't know but what are your thoughts when you when you saw this
4: well look I can give you the legal opinion or the real reason this was done, Scott. And it wasn't done for a legal purpose. Um, I can tell you, what's happened here is a lawsuit that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, it's not going to be successful. Doesn't matter which side of the currently very heated debate one was, on, one is on, or was on. What this has done, Scott and it's happening everywhere around the world, and Canada is victim number one of it, is it's meant to chill speech. Yeah, That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to make every one of your listeners, it's meant to make every one of the politicians who are on a different side than this NDP, MPP, it's meant to make them be quiet. Because you can say whatever you want on that side, But you cannot say whatever you want on the other. And this lawsuit is absolute proof positive of it. So it's going to go nowhere legally. If it does, the NDP MPP, I think, is in for a rude awakening in the courts. Obviously, it depends on which judge you get. That is something that any lawyer speaking honestly will always tell you. But there are so many defenses to what Doug Ford said, even if you vociferously disagree with him, which in this day and age, people don't even agree that the sun rises in the East, Scott. (laughs) But the point of the story is what has happened in this country through bills in parliament, through what you know you can say on anti-social media or not, is that if you express an opinion contrary To the NDP MPP's opinions and view of a certain issue, you are going to get in trouble. But if you espouse one in favor of what she's espousing, whether it's in a parade downtown, whether you're in the back of a pickup truck, whether you're gathering tens of thousands of people in Montreal and Toronto, you will face no recourse. So the reason you bring a lawsuit like this, as I said, is because you're going to chill the speech of Canadians who are watching this, who have very strong opinions, but they're going to say to themselves, it just isn't worth me saying anything because there'll be too much heat on me if I do, whether it's professional or personal repercussions. And when you bring that, Scott, into the realm of Queen's Park, there's a reason not only at Queen's Park, but in the House of Commons, you see such silence on these issues Even when you look at the recent events at the hospital, facts are telling us one thing and you're not seeing anybody coming out and saying, oops, we got it wrong. There's a reason for that. That is the country we now live in. And the fact that this will chill speech, Scott, that is very, very concerning to me as a person believes that speech is the only way out of things.
0: It's fascinating you say that, Ari, because since this issue has, uh, since this all started, we've obviously every day tried to get guests on to talk about it. And there's some, especially in academia, that will not talk about it.
4: The ones who will not talk about it, Scott, almost to a person, have one view that is contrary to the NDP MPP. And to her great credit, and I say this, we're on radio, people can't see my face, she's very open and honest, as is Marit Stiles, about defending her NDP, MPP, who has these views that we're talking about. Their answer is very simple. This is what my constituents want. This is what my constituents believe in. This is why they voted for me. Now, to a great number of Canadians, but an increasingly dwindling number, if you understand the demographics of which religions in this country are growing and which are dwindling, that's a very scary notion that Marit Stiles comes out and says, this is what our constituents want this NDP MPP to be saying. So you are going to find a great difficulty. And by the way, I know this inside baseball, how the sausage is made. There are serious repercussions for those who come out and espouse views differently than this NDP MPP. And Doug Ford, the premier of the actual province, who has a multitude of defenses to this, such as truth, justification, fair comment, commenting on a matter of public interest or importance, let alone certain qualified privileges he may have as the premier, even though he may not be in the legislature when he does it, which is an interesting issue. This is a lawsuit that is not meant to end up in a courtroom. If it does, and a judge finds against the NDP MPP, this will go very badly, but it's really meant, Scott, to get your audience who, if they're on one side of the fence, are concerned about something, or if they're an MPP or an MP, and they're concerned on one side of the fence of something that's happening, They know to shut up because it's just not worth running afoul of the new Canada. And that's what makes this pernicious, very scary, and to use a word that I think, Scott, is never understood anymore, it makes it very illiberal to live in a country where the price of speaking the truth as you believe it is just too high personally or professionally. It's very, very sad to see. Are you
0: surprised the party leader has not come out and said something, especially initially when saying this does not represent the party?
4: But it does represent the party, Scott. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> well, this well, clearly is it party. does if
0: she if she's letting it go on, right?
4: Well, that's the point. This is the party. Yeah. This is baked into the cake. Look, there are dozens of MPs in the Liberal Party who have extraordinarily similar views to this NDP MPP. This is the direction of this country, Scott. Any of your listeners can just Google the demographics of this country. Now, that doesn't mean anything more than it means, but that is the NDP. If you are extremely anti Semitic, if you are extremely anti Israel, even more than the anti Semitic part, which is usually a get out of jail free card, well, we don't really hate Jews, we just hate Israel that is literally going to get you elected in the NDP or in many parts of this country if you're a liberal. That's baked right into the cake. I think most honest, decent, even Stephen down the middle people realize that. That's what this lawsuit plays into. And again, I know people will say a slippery slope. The answer is wear better shoes. In this situation, that's not the case. And that's why. You will see one side of this very heated argument that makes people hate each other and see each other as the enemy and as awful people. One side can speak very freely, very openly. They can gather, they can celebrate what's going on in another part of the world, they can call for more of it. There will be no arrests, there will be no charges, there will be no promotion of hatred, there will be no incitement to genocide. And the other side, because they understand the tea leaves, Scott, are just staying quiet because it's just too dangerous to say something out loud. And for a country that seems to have a charter of rights that was started by our current prime minister's daddy, it seems to be antithetical to what this country and most of the Western world should be standing for. And that's why this is pernicious and sinister, because it's making good people who are talking about this openly at their dinner table or with people they trust it is making them not say their views publicly and as I said Scott a moment ago look at the quote from Marit Stiles this is what the NDP MPPs' constituents want and like and that should scare a significant number of Canadians.
0: Ari Goldkine with us, Toronto lawyer, legal expert and commentator on the issue of NDP MPP Sarah Jama threatening to sue Premier Doug Ford. Ari, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
4: To be with you, Scott.
0: The headline from the Associated Press, Ukraine's use of powerful U.S. weapon won't change the war's out- outcome, so says Putin. A Russian missile attack killed two civilians in an apartment building in southern Ukraine on Wednesday. Local authorities said Putin dismissed the importance of a new U.S. supplied weapon that Kiev uses to uh, execute one of the most damaging attacks on the Kremlin's air assets since the start of the war. To talk more about all of this, Arl Brown with us, Professor International Relations, Senior Member, Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. And here now. Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Before we get to this, how does the conflict and what is happen happening uh between Hamas and Israel, how does it affect what is going on in Ukraine?
5: Russia wanted to have the front pages be distracted by anything else than what is happening in Ukraine. So at the very least, this is a bonus for Russia. But it is more than an accidental bonus. Russia has protected Hamas it tries to continue to protect Hamas at uh, the United Nations and uh, the Security Council by proposing resolutions which do not even mention the terrorist group and of course Russia has been very close to Iran and Iran is the octopus uh, and the tentacles of octopus are Hamas and Hezbollah and we know that uh, Russia and Iran have become ever closer Iran has supplied vast numbers of killer drones uh, to Russia, and we also see North Korea increasingly supplying armaments to Russia. So there is this kind of interconnection in the the international system, and nothing is, in a sense, local.
0: There was some chatter that some of uh, what happened in Israel was from North Korea. Is that valid?
5: According to the Israelis, some of the armaments that they found on the terrorists committed these horrendous massacres, were manufactured in North Korea. Hmm. Uh, Some of these are available on uh, uh, these uh, armament markets, uh, but they may have been supplied by North Korea directly as well. North Korea is a rogue state, and uh, these armaments uh, were also probably filtered through Iran, which has purchased armaments from North Korea.
0: So, uh, is one tied to the other in the sense that uh, Putin saying to somebody, boy, this would be a good idea for that, because it would, uh, for for this attack, and then therefore it would be a distraction, or is it much more subtle than that?
5: Probably it was much more subtle uh, than that. Uh, They may be beneficiaries of a decision that was made by Hamas and perhaps by uh, Iran, but they certainly uh, are benefiting from it and welcoming it because. You notice uh, that much of the media has just about forgotten about what is happening in Ukraine. Uh, mm. The focus is on, on uh, Hamas and, and Israel, which is not entirely surprising, but Russia wanted that, uh, that uh, change. And so this is why they're going through the motions of, yes, we are uh, very sad about the people who are dying in uh, uh, the Middle East and so on and so on. And yes, Russia wants to fight terrorism, but at the same time, it's uh, uh, protecting Hamas at the Security Council. So the level of hypocrisy of the Putin regime uh, is phenomenal.
0: Uh, not much time left, about a minute or so here, Arl. It, it, the weaponry that is coming in to aid Ukraine, is it making an impact? Is it having an impact? Is it—is it pushing back Russia?
5: It is, and it's a very potent weapon. The attack M's—they're longer range, they can hit targets in Crimea and behind Russian lines. The question is uh, how many of these attack camps are the the Ukrainians getting? How many more will be sent over? Are they going to get uh, more of the 155-millimeter artillery shells that they desperately need? And uh, it's, it's a question of the West really pulling their act together and mobilizing the capacity to produce a lot of sophisticated armaments and get them to Ukraine, which they have not done as in a sufficiently timely, timely fashion so far.
0: Arl Brown with us, Professor of uh, International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On
1: Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
0: A 15-foot statue that has made its home on the front lawn of Saint Ca- in St. Catharines, Ontario City Hall, for more than a century will soon be gone after councillors voted in favour of taking it down. A uh, private Alex- uh, Alexander Watson statue is set to be displaced following a 12-to-1 vote supporting the removal from... Uh, uh, from the grounds, uh, the mayor saying characterized the figure as something that causes pain to members of the community. The statue considered by many as a symbol of federal government's crushing of indigenous peoples in battle and has been in question for just over a decade was the target of a petition in the summer of 2020 seeking its withdrawal. To talk more about all of this, Matt Cisco is with us, mayor of St. Catharines and here now. Matt, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well
6: yeah it's uh it's been a busy week but uh no i appreciate the opportunity to chat today.
0: i can imagine it has been so tell us the significance of the statue alexander watson why it was erected what it would what it represent it
6: yeah for sure so private alexander watson was a soldier from st Catharines who fought in the battle of Batoche, which was a part of what we used to call the northwest rebellion and what many refer to as the northwest resistance now in manitoba it uh it was originally conceived of when he died, his family uh, had a gravestone marker, and that's what the statue was supposed to be, a gravestone marker that would have been placed at his gravesite in uh, our Victoria Lawn Cemetery here in St. Catharines. But the mayor of the day kind of co-opted the statue and had it placed on the front lawn of City Hall, and it actually served as a uh, basically a makeshift cenotaph for a number of years until after the First World War, at which time the city of St. Catharines erected a proper cenotaph uh, in Memorial Park and all of our Remembrance Day ceremonies have taken place there. All of our uh, military ceremonies have taken place at that location. So, for you know the last hundred years, it's sat on the front lawn of City Hall. Um, there were efforts made in the '70s to try and repair it. It was falling apart. Uh, they used a, a very interesting technique, which did not work at all. And so, the statue has now been crumbling since about 2000. Uh, 2009 is when the first report came forward saying, listen, this is falling apart. And council has refused steadily to do anything about it. And so in 2020, when the petition came forward, it said, listen, our views of this battle are very different now from what they were back in the 1880s. Uh, People were requesting that the statue came down. Council was faced with the decision. We can either keep the statue up and fix it, or we can remove it. And a lot of us said, like, it should be brought back to the cemetery where it was originally intended as a gravestone marker. Um, council kind of refused to do anything about it over the course of 2020 and 2021. So when I got elected in conversations with the Niagara Regional Native Center, they expressed to me like, this is still important to us. Like, this is difficult for members of our community uh, to see when they come to City Hall, and we think it should be removed. And so we made the step to do that on Monday night with a near unanimous vote of 12 to 1. And where does it go? Uh, so, uh, our, our desire is still, if it can be removed safely, uh, because there's a lot of questions about whether it can be removed properly in one piece, but if it can, and we, we're, we're hopeful that it can be, that it be moved back to Victoria Lawn and go back to what it was originally intended to by the family, which was a gravestone marker for private laws.
0: Uh, I can see how this is a pretty controversial issue. What do you say to the others, others that are saying, well, why not just erect another statue or a commemorative plaque or something that explains the other side of the story, educate people rather than remove?
6: Uh, that's been raised a lot. We are going to put up a plaque on the site, and we're going to put up a plaque which, you know, explains who Private Watson was, explains what the statue was, explains why it was taken down, and gives some context and some history to the decision-making and, you know, what the Northwest resistance was to the the Plains Indigenous peoples. Uh, But when I talk to folks, you know, a lot of people people try and make this a culture war issue They try and say, you're trying to erase history. It's literally the opposite of that. We're trying to reconcile with the history. We're trying to say, listen, this was the history, and I've
0: made the point to a lot of people like a community gets to decide but let me let way. me ask you this Matt let me ask you this and I'm sorry to interrupt but it's not about changing history it's about changing how you document history you can't change history what happened happened. Uh, whether it's good, bad, ugly or, or what have you. So again, uh, I, I think that I think one of the reasons people get upset about this is because it's removal as opposed to an addition of. So rather than remove it, put a plaque up, whatever, why not put the plaque up and do all of that stuff and tell both sides of the story as opposed to creating controversy uh, because I'm sure, uh, is it, and I completely understand the pain that it brings to some members of the community, but it also affects other members of the community who don't agree with this. So why wouldn't you do both as opposed to just
2: one?
6: Well, to your point, removing the statue doesn't remove history. The history still exists. And the community gets to decide what it's going to commemorate. But when we make that decision, it's not frozen in amber. You know, like, it it can't never be changed. The community can't change its mind. Uh, The community can change its mind later on, and that's what the community's doing. And I raise this with councillors because a couple push back exactly the same way. When we name, you know, a street after somebody or we name uh, a municipal facility after someone, if we find out later on that there's a reason why that person doesn't align with the community's values, we change that name. And in St. Catharines, we've done that in the past.
7: This
6: This is something very similar, and I don't think... You know, I I,
0: I guess my point here in all of this, Matt, is, you know, we see the removals of the McDonald statues, now this one of a local soldier and such, um, you know, as if it's only them that fought that way. And it's not. It's the rest of society who thought that way. So should we remove every picture, every statue of ever all of our ancestors, our aunts, uncles, parents, what have you? Because it's not just like McDonald and this Alexander Watson were bad people. All of society was. So it's as if we make ourselves feel better by taking down these symbols as opposed to honoring them. Like, I think, you know, what if Europe took down everything? (laughs) There'd be nothing to see there. Like, the whole idea is you go there, you learn the history through all of this, and it seems that... You know, uh, we're trying to do that to to appease ourselves, or, or to 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 think that this somehow solves the problem. It, it, it again is only telling one side of the story. I, why not well, both? I'm,
8: I'm
6: curious, Scott. Has anybody told you that this solves the problem? Because I haven't heard a single person suggest that this sort of thing solves the problem.
0: What that, taking it, what, uh, that what that what solves the problem? Removing about, the I'm statue.
6: Sure you've talked about. I'm sure you've talked about truth and reconciliation on your show. You know, yeah. when we talk about taking proper, actual concrete steps to truth and reconciliation, and this was identified by the Niagara Regional Native Center and the Community of Indigenous Peoples in Niagara as something that was an actual step on the path to reconciliation. I happen to think that that's very important. Now, I can't make everybody see it as that important.
0: We all think that, that that journey is important, Matt. We just don't agree with the way to get there. So, you know, you really can't say people who don't agree with you or moving the statue, uh, don't think the same way that you do as about truth and reconciliation. That's not true. Um, it, it's, it's just that sick. some people it, it, some it, people they want don't the whole see the same way as I do. Like, I,
6: no, mean, no, I, I with I, you, I, Scott. They clearly I, I, don't I, see it and that's okay. I'm not saying that's yeah, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying we have a difference of opinion on what our next step is, but it, that's this is going to be the conversation. And, you know, mm. we're going to be faced with other conversations and other possible actions, and the community is going to make the decision.
0: Also, I would because- say, I would say, Matt, we got to run. But I would say put up more statues. Don't take them down. Matt Sisko with us, Mayor of St. Catharines. Thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciated. Difficult issue. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today Podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Campbell Clark is with us, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail and his latest, The Liberals Win Points on Housing Policy, but it might not change the, poli- uh, the politics. And I'm going to whip it, just read you the last uh, paragraph and you should honestly go on the Globe and Mail website and read this entire article, but I'm just giving you the last uh, uh, the last paragraph. So now the Liberals have regained their footing in, in the fight over who can address the housing crisis, but it is still a government eight years into power, hoping to win a political argument over who has the best solutions for years in the future. Mr. Fraser, the housing minister, is starting to win debates in the Commons on housing policy, but it might be too late to make Canadians feel that things will change. And to talk more about all of this uh, is, is Campbell Clark, chief political writer for The Globe and with us now. Campbell, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: Doing great, Scott. I hope you are too.
0: It is. Thank you so much. It is obvious that uh, that uh, whatever's going on, whatever communications changes or what have you, that the liberals are, are are at least not dropping the ball as much. They're starting to gain a little traction. But are they winning debates, or are they just catching up? Because it seems, uh, it, it seems that they are arriving at the house fire when the house is always burnt to the ground.
3: Yeah. So that that was, in a sense, the thrust, or a large part of the thrust, by colleagues. Yeah. Because you know, it seemed for so long like they didn't see the water boiling that they were sitting in, you know? Uh, the housing debate was, pr- the housing crisis was obvious. A lot of people They are getting hammered on it politically for a long time, and they just kept, to s- seem to keep saying, you know, we've already done a lot about housing, and, and, and things are okay, or somebody else should be responsible. But they have responded now. They have uh, taken some pretty uh, serious policy measures. And this was the thing that I was remarking upon. If you watched Question Period on Monday, You know, on a policy level, they were starting to win those debates. Hmm. They were starting to say, you know, our policy is better than your policy. And at least uh, in terms of whose policy is bigger and bolder, you know, that's a reasonable claim now. But it still hasn't changed the situation for the average Canadian, and it won't for a long time
0: that's a lot of this was regurgitated uh, from promises that were made back in 2015 um will people believe them in the sense well it wasn't a priority for you for the last eight years why is it a priority for you now because obviously you're in the basement in the polls and that's why all of a sudden things are changing
3: yeah that's that is a really good question will people believe them in fact it's probably the essential question So you are talking in particular about their policy, their promise in 2015, which which was to eliminate the GST on purpose-built rental housing. In other words, rental units wouldn't have the uh, GST charge. And so when you eliminate it, there's a big incentive for companies to uh, developers to build more rental units, more housing. And in fact, now that they've done that, there are developers saying they plan to build more rental units. So You know, it does seem to be having a stimulative effect. But as you point out, this was something they promised to do and didn't because they thought it was too expensive eight years ago. They claimed there were better ways they felt eight years ago, and now they're doing it. There is a – you can say, look, this is going to have an impact. It's going to change the housing situation. It's just going to take time. Hmm. The question is, do people care about what they – them you know will they regain their credibility by saying we do have a good solution for the future when people are feeling the pinch of a housing crisis now i mean and that pinch is pretty severe right now isn't it
0: and and will they get credit for it considering opposition parties and 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 home builders associations have been asking for this forever so it's not even it's not their idea they're just agreeing with what other people have suggested
3: well, I mean, it is an expensive in, in for the treasury government policy, so it is you know a significant government decision. The question is, do people think first of all that they did it you know voluntarily, that they did it at the right time, that they did it soon enough? More important than that, probably in terms of their political uh, case, is will people feel it quickly enough? You know, things like this that change the amount of housing being built, they don't actually change the, you know the They don't make a big impact on the overall supply, on supply and demand of housing for a few years. And they won't have that impact really until after the next election. Um,
0: many have criticized the prime minister for not being strong on fiscal issues more into social issues the world has changed uh in the last few years uh especially post pandemic uh are are they out of touch um again changing a policy is one thing but at the end of the day can you change your ideology i mean you are what you are
3: so i don't expect them to change dramatically on fiscal approach um i think it's pretty uh, fair argument that they are not, uh, it's not pretty fair, it's a fair argument that they are not not tight controllers of expenditure, that they are heavy spenders. You could argue that in the pandemic, when when the real big deficit spending occurred, that they were doing the sort of spending that the public was actually asking for. But certainly outside of those times, they spent heavy that's what they were elected to do in some ways. They've been re-elected to do. They, that's you know, not something that they hide, that they are a big government party now. I think things may have changed to a certain extent, I think, uh, in terms of Canadians' priorities. I think one of the things that's going to have an impact is interest rates change You know, deficit figures. They make uh, projections of debt look more dangerous in the future. There are people that want them to show that at least they've got a sharper pencil than they have had in the past. I think overall, though, their big problem isn't so much are they spending too much, so much as is the impact of inflation on Canadians something that they can really change or are really changing. People who don't care about deficits as an abstract uh, concept, what they're caring about now is their own pocketbook. You know, more than anything else. And so you were mentioning that has the real issue impact on them.
0: If the party's getting more traction, does that show that it's time for a new leader? Because clearly he is not, uh, and there's other people that are starting to shine within the party. You were talking about the housing minister and such, um, yeah. or we were talking about the housing minister. Uh, it, d- does this does this uh, I guess shine a light on the fact that the party? uh has is trying to get its act together, but they need new leadership in order to to take this over the top.
3: Well, you know the party is trying to you know fix the course that they were on and regain some of the popularity that they've lost. Their policy measures are sort of bringing them back there, but I'm not sure that they're really on track. Obviously, the, the polls they've gone down quite a bit. I think the problem they have in changing leaders this late stage in the government when they've already lost in the polls is partly that there isn't anybody inside that government who isn't closely tied or Hmm. potential contender who not closely tied to the Justin Trudeau liberal agenda. And when they run for the leadership, I don't know that they could be a different prospect as leader of the liberal party, have people see them as different from the Trudeau liberals. And Hmm. If you're going to have somebody run at the head of the Trudeau liberals, it, maybe there's no one better to be a Trudeau to be a Trudeau liberal <laughs> than Justin Trudeau.
0: That's a good point. Campbell Clark with his chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. You can find his latest there. Campbell, as always, thank you for the time. Be well.
3: Thank you. You too. I can
4: give you the legal opinion of the real reason this was done, Scott, and it wasn't done for a legal purpose. Um, I can tell you what's happened here is a lawsuit that's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be successful. Doesn't matter which side of the currently very heated debate one was on, one is on or was on.
0: All right, that is lawyer Ari Golkine, who was commenting earlier on on the show in the show in regard to uh, NDP MPP Sarah Jemma uh, now threatening to sue Premier Doug Ford for libel over his comments uh, in regard to a post that Sarah Jamma had put up uh, that many viewed as anti-Semitic. Of course, uh, the Ontario government asking for uh, the MP MPP Sarah Jamma to be censured. Uh, Uh, That is getting support from conservatives and some liberals as well in the legislature. And that process is going through now, uh, which basically means that uh, she can attend uh, the ledge, but not be able to vote or speak or such. Uh, The fallout of all of this and doubling down as opposed to just moving forward. Peter Grafe with us, professor of political science at McMaster University and here now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks. Hope you're well, too. Peter are you surprised this has gone as far as it has?
7: Uh yeah, I guess a bit. Uh you know, ultimately, uh you would have expected the NDP to just try and quiet this up uh so that they could go back to making the issue that of the green belt. Uh so this, you know, latest lawsuit is uh, kind of a continuation of the diversion if you like of, of debates at Queen's Park this week. Uh, you know, so in that bit, uh, I am a bit surprised. On the other hand, I'm not surprised to see the government uh, continuing to beat on this drum. We saw it during the uh, by uh, the by election earlier this year. Uh, clearly, they feel that this is uh, an effective tactic uh, to kind of change the dynamic at Queen's Park.
0: Uh, the government certainly not the only ones to speak up about this. Are you surprised that um, the leader of the NDP, Merritt Stiles has i guess agreed to keep her on after saying initially this doesn't represent the views of the party uh and i'm not sure that uh, she was asked i believe if she was aware that uh mpp jama was going to do this and she didn't come out with a straight answer so i'm not sure that she knew that uh, the mpp was going to take this direction should we be hearing from the leader
7: yeah, well, I mean, I suspect uh, you're right. It sounds like uh, Merritt Styles was uh, a bit surprised by this, you know, which is likely not going to improve the relationship between uh, Sarah Jama and uh, the NDP leader. Uh, when all is said and done, uh, I think largely because it continues to draw out this question, uh, and presumably uh, to the extent that there is any uh, movement forward with, uh, uh, you know, a potential libel suit or what have you, uh, it will continue relitigating this question in a manner which really puts the emphasis on uh, Sarah Jamma and, you know, whether her comments uh, are indeed anti-Semitic or not, and does she have a history of that, and, you know, was she uh, uh, supporting, uh, you know, uh, or cheering on terrorism as the Premier claimed? Um, and so, it, ultimately, even if she's exonerated in that process, uh, it, it keeps the focus on that rather than on what the government is doing or not doing.
0: Some have said that the government is taking the sorry, the NDP is taking this position to cater to votes. Um, will it help or hurt the party? Do you think?
7: I mean, ultimately, I, I suspect uh, a large number of Ontarians, if they were to read Sarah Jama's uh, statements, uh, you know, might find them unfortunate or criticizable in various ways, but probably would not uh, adopt. Uh, the view of, you know, the extent of the view that's been put forward by the Premier in his statement and in his public statement. And in those cases, I think you can understand then why uh, strategically it maybe makes sense to to bring forward a libel suit. I mean, for the NDP itself, I, I think they recognize that public opinion is probably more divided on this than we see among Canada's political and, and media elites, uh, particularly among young people uh, who are an important part of their base. And I think in that context, then, they want to be careful uh, in terms of their positioning um, to ultimately not alienate that base by simply throwing out Sarah Jama for making comments that are, uh, you know, not uncommon uh, in the debate on this question, um, you know, particularly uh, in social media and, you know, among uh, discussions of young people and in a number of different communities. So in that sense, uh, you know, there's a bit of a danger, I think, at this moment to, Try and censure people to try and limit their access to the legislature, you know, rather than having that voice uh, present in the debate and uh, presumably shown to be a minority uh, position within uh, Queen's Park.
0: Is this or should this be a discussion between certain groups providing divisiveness, whether it's the Israelis versus the Palestinians? Isn't this really about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism? And no matter what you are, where you are, your religious beliefs, the color of your skin, it's either freedom and democracy uh, or it's authoritarianism and terrorism. I mean, it seems that we're trying to make this more personal and less about those issues. Issues.
7: well I mean I presume that within uh, you know our legislature where we'd presume to have the, the freedom of speech and debate you know that's precisely the debate that could be had yeah. um, you know we have a we have a provincial government that required all Ontario universities to pass uh, policies on free speech uh, yet ultimately that wishes to deny you know presence uh, within the legislature to someone who has uh, Express some views which they consider uh, highly offensive, you know. So in that context, yeah, I don't think we really end up with that debate uh, uh, when it is that personalized. And you know, rather than trying to to make the case that we should see it in that way, uh, we instead uh, make it really about the the prosecution of a single individual.
0: Peter Grab, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about uh, Hamilton Center, NDP, MPP, Sarah Jama. Peter, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: You too. When there's an issue,
0: Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On
1: Hamilton's News, today's Talk 900
0: All right, uh, the latest on the war uh, between Israel and Hamas. And we certainly know the horrific images that are coming out of there. Hospital uh, blown to pieces uh, and, and both sides blaming each other. Evidence uh, coming forth and hopefully will prove uh, what happened there uh, as well. It's just uh, we, we've got humanitarian aid trying to get through. It's going. It looks like it's going to be stuck in Egypt until tomorrow. Uh, so it's, it's just a, a, a terrible situation situation and many thinking it could get into some sort of regional conflict let's bring in dr Arne kislenko margaret mcmillan trinity one international relations program trinity college university of toronto and department of history at toronto metropolitan university and here now arn thank you for the time i hope you're doing well
2: i'm doing well thank you so much
0: 't it sad to see how not only this is happening but how it's dividing cities uh, across Canada as we have uh, rallies on both sides of this uh, debate uh, it's become quite divisive or it's certainly trying to on the extremes is this really about Israelis versus Palestinians shouldn't this be about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism in uh, either you're you're on the side of democracy or you're not
2: Yeah, I mean, for some people that is precisely the response, but let's be honest about it, this is also deeply rooted in in history, deeply cultural, uh, and it is, for many people, also a religious uh, uh, issue, so it's hard to disconnect, particularly when some people... Uh, aren't able to see the proverbial other side or they don't care to we we do have ideological positions very deeply rooted on on both sides of this um so no as a historian i always say you know it, it is ultimately about about history a very contested and very uh hostile history
0: what do palestinians need to do to separate themselves for from hamas do they want to
2: Excellent question, and and, I mean, to date, meaning in decades, that has uh, certainly been a resounding no, very unfortunately, and and for many Palestinians, it's because they can't; they they have nowhere to go. Uh, Particularly in Gaza, it is of course a very small area; it is heavily contained, Um, and you know the the freedom of mobility that so many of us in the West enjoy uh, is not evident to them. And then, of course, Hamas—you know—if you live there in in the streets, eventually you can figure out who's who, but. Uh, Hamas does mask itself in many different respects, right, behind business fronts and social agencies and all of these things, which many Gazans have become uh, very dependent on. That is a a modus operandi for a lot of international terrorist organizations, Hezbollah as well. Uh, So many people don't see and don't think of them as terrorist organizations to begin with and don't want to separate from them.
0: Uh, history aside, does this not really come down to good versus evil at the end with the world watching? Will it not simplify it in that way? And if this area, if this state is going to survive, they have to be on the right side of history. Otherwise, won't they disappear with Hamas?
2: Yeah, so there's there's two parts to your question. First, it really depends on one's point of view as to what is good and what is evil, and you might expect that coming from yeah, yeah. because we straddle yeah. that stuff. Uh, certainly, I think there's a, an awful lot of evil here in a lot of different ways, um, and the good has not prevailed. Uh, so I'm always delighted to see people that on both sides that talk about peaceful resolution and about the need for diplomacy. The reality is, is that right now Hamas is... Um, being annihilated. Uh, It is likely to face an extreme annihilation if the Israelis invade uh, the Strip itself. Um, And with them, I mean, the idea will not go away. So we shouldn't fool ourselves about that. That kind of extremist position will be there regardless. But the actual organization may be decimated. The the tragedy is is that it's so interwoven with with, uh, Gaza and Gazans that what you're seeing is, is what you're going to see a lot more of, is the, the death and destruction of innocent civilians. That is a, a horrible thing to say. It pains me to say it. Yeah. And of course, our, our even bigger fear, um, certainly in academic and political communities, is that this could very likely spread uh, north of the border, right into, into Lebanon in particular, where Hezbollah, everybody is watching very carefully to see how engaged they are if they'll get involved. In which case we are, as you said in, in the preliminary to your show, uh, facing the specter of a regional war. Um,
0: say Israel continues to do what they're doing and levels uh, the Gaza Strip, then what? Is it, it, does that create the vacuum in which others will then come in? Or is there a uh, you know, a peaceful second stage to this where, okay, that's gone now, what do we build?
2: Well, it's extremely hard to imagine anybody engaging in peaceful discussions right away after their land has been annihilated and the, yeah. the, the the government and military that they imagine protects them has been has been gone. There's too much death and destruction for that, at least in an immediate sense. Um maybe in a longer sense. But but I think also to be really succinct with you, I don't think the Israeli leaders have an idea of what comes next. Um, yeah. And by that I mean they have they have acted in a very obvious way for many people to defend themselves. They've acted in a in a very decisive way, and from all indication, it seems that they are prepared to continue to do this. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily means they have a game plan beyond the destruction of Hamas uh, and potentially the the an engagement with Hezbollah, which which for me is the next. Uh, And most scary step of this, that's not to diminish the tremendous suffering of both Israelis who endured terrorist attacks and the Gazans who are now enduring war. Um, But what we've seen could get exponentially worse and conceivably even drag in Iran, which is, I think, what you're alluding to, right, on the sides of good and evil, you know, Mm -hmm. much bigger players that are at work here.
0: Um, Is Israel not concerned what will happen after this? As you're saying, it could expand to a greater war. Yeah.
2: yeah, listen, for Israel, this has always been an existential crisis, right? They yeah. are surrounded, a small country, surrounded by hostile enemies. That hasn't changed very much over decades. Um, that, you know, in many people's minds, that le- legitimizes their response to this. Um, the difficulty is, is that all of the historical and, and sort of cultural realities aren't going to change. This is not certainly immediately. We have not seen uh, leadership in any respect be successful in developing a lasting peace. You know, there's a huge debate between one state and two state solutions. Mm-hmm. The ideological extremity of some Israelis, um, as as well as an awful lot of, uh, of Palestinian and Arab organizations. Um, doesn't favor the idea that we're we're looking at a piece anytime anytime soon. And particularly not in in this situation when I personally and I think a lot of other people suspect there are larger powers at that, that work here behind the scenes mm-hmm. and that that points to it around.
0: Dr. Arne Kislenko with us. Uh, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, and Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University. Arne, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Sir.
2: Thanks, you too. <laughs> it was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June, in the kid was hauling logs. Cab a
0: Cab over Pete, Pete with, with reef a reefer on, on, and a Jimmy on. hauling hogs. We was heading for Bear, and I went on about a mile out of shaky town. Turn it up. Big Ben, this year's a rubber duck, and, and I'm about to put my hammer down Bow. Major Tom doesn't know this song I don't know how All right, uh, I was born to to in the late 90s Scott <laughs> <laughs> that might have something to do with it Just hey man bit. You gotta download that tune, crank it up in in your uh, little things you stick in your ears, and then watch the movie. Uh, maybe have a couple of beers. You'll love it. All right, enough of that. Uh, the, we we had Tim Powers, chairman of SUMA Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data, on yesterday, but then we ended up talking about one of his polls, so we never got to talk about what we actually called him for, and that was the Freedom Convoy, and the trial is on right now. Did you have any idea that the trials are right, on right now in regarding to the Emergencies Act and, the, and these people that? that uh, we're going to take over the world with their big horns and such. Uh, so let's get an update on where exactly this is, especially in the scheme of the world, considering the crisis that we have. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, here now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
8: I feel I should belt out freedom!
0: <laughs> you know, this is the first time we didn't play you in with Great Big C. I feel bad about that, but I thought... I. I don't know. I was just dying to play the Convoy song for some you know, a reason and excuse to play it, and we did. There you go. All right, we were supposed to talk about this yesterday, and as always, we get we get yakking and never to what we're supposed to. So your thoughts, because this really hasn't played out much throughout the rest of the country. I don't know how much hay it's making in Ottawa, but give us a little breakdown on on what is going on and where we are in all of this.
8: Well, even here now, it's gotten a little Quieter. Um, it, it originally was supposed to be 16 days, but as I, uh, as we discussed when the last time we discussed it, they didn't think it would. La- they thought it would go longer. It certainly has gone longer. Uh, when I was doing some follow-up on it, uh, the defense is now uh, presenting its witnesses. Interesting. Uh, interestingly, they're using police liaison officers. So these are the people who. Not only greeted the convoy protesters, but liaised with other protesters and people who demonstrate in Ottawa. So over the last couple of days, they've had um, a uh, a liaison officer up, and the defense is trying to make the case by both questioning the liaison officer and looking at a series of different texts that this officer had with other officers uh, to say that it was the the police, the officials, who actually created this mess in the first place by mm. directing uh, the convoy to go to Wellington Street, which is the street in front of Parliament and stay there. So it's really not the convoy's fault. not it's the police's fault and they should have managed this better themselves. whether that will <laughs> hold water or not, I don't know. Uh, but that is the case they uh, the aspect of the case they're trying to present right now.
0: Um, in the grand scheme of things, compare you know, comparing to where we are in the world, and I know this is a completely separate entity, but what's the objective here? What do you think is going to come out of this?
8: Well, um, it's a great question. What's going to come out of this? Well, I, 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 again, I think there's a desire by the government and the uh, the, the various um, uh, government officials who are prosecuting this case to reinforce the point that what happened here two years or a year and a bit ago um, was not your normal protest. It wasn't you know, appropriate. There were aspects of it that were uh, were dangerous and people got uh, felt they were threatened. And you had, I think, 25 witnesses from uh, from the city who spoke to this last week. Uh, and the government wants to i'm sure it will be used if the you know the convoy leaders the two on trial now are found to be guilty of any of these charges to justify the invocation of the of the emergencies act though to be fair these people are not being charged with terrorism charges they're being charged with provincial um, provincial based offensive i don't offenses i don't think there's Specific federal offenses there, I may be wrong, but they're certainly not terrorism-related offenses. So, you know, it's a different level of government that's bringing about the the charges, but uh, nonetheless, all governments were acting as one certainly was the, uh, the message that governments were driving during the freedom convoy period here in Ottawa.
0: At the end of the day, and I don't mean to uh, uh, to be insensitive about what the people oh, of I Ottawa went. No, I'm not going to try to pop the bubble or anything. But in the grand scheme of, other things, of, of all of that's going on in the world, does the government, the, 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 the council, the, the mayor of Ottawa, the city police, I mean, don't they look silly in all of this in the sense that they let a group of citizens with big trucks and big horns come in and they didn't do anything for several days. And then once they didn't leave with their tail between their legs, fully embarrassed, like the government thought they would, then they had a problem on their hands. Can we really slice it and dice it beyond anything than that? It was mismanagement, don't you think, from the from the get-go, as opposed to the devil was coming and and, and they beat us? Uh, it's just, to me, it looks like it's self, self-inflicted and lack of preparation.
8: Well, there's certainly all of that, and certainly that's an argument, a central argument that the defense is making, and you'll know the police chief lost his job. There's been a series of, reviews. Uh, the police have admitted um, that they didn't necessarily manage aspects of this right. They've changed all their protocols. All that is accurate. But I, I don't think it was simply just that, too, because it and, and, that, and that's the point that the, uh, the prosecution is trying to make that, yeah, there may have been um, police mismanagement, government mismanagement. But what you did was illegal and the, your activities did have an impact not on the people that you were hoping they would impact i.e. the government but your fellow citizens and mm-hmm. there has to be consideration for that where where do your rights to protest begin and end and where do the rights of you know citizens who live here and uh Uh, and elsewhere who've been subject to this uh, begin and end as well so it's it's more than just police mismanagement
0: isn't it funny we're having the same discussion now over what's happening with israel and hamas uh, on both sides of the debate the rallies that are going on
8: yeah i yes uh i mean look there were people here as you know i think it was well reported there was a Uh, an anti-Jewish rally outside an anti-Semitism conference earlier in the week. And there are some people that are saying it was an illegal rally. The police should have done something different. I think this is part and parcel of it now. Is your rally just or is it unjust? Where does it fit in the greater scheme of things? I mean, people do have a right to protest. It's certainly something we, we, we want to make sure is enshrined and protected. But where does it cross over? So, yeah, we're seeing it out, play out in a lot of jurisdictions. So what's one of the common factors? populism and anger uh, that uh, many people in society feel, and how far can you carry that in the, the way our democratic societies are constructed?
0: Will this have any impact on government? And will we at least get like a list of recommendations or something we should do or not do in all of this? I mean, do we learn separately anything here?
8: From this, yeah. Separately, there, remember there. Are yeah, a
0: yeah. Reviews There's a of commission. This. Yeah, yeah.
8: Yeah, there are a couple of reviews of this. So yeah, there will be more recommendations than you and I could ever uh, talk about or Great Big C could t- sing about. But there will be recommendations. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think a lot of people here felt. Um, like something had been done when the, the the police chief, and you'll remember his testimony at one of the hearings, when he left. Uh, I, I think a lot, whether fair or unfair, blame was placed at his foot uh, at yeah. his feet. And yeah. you certainly don't hear about that much anymore.
0: All right. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and spends lots of time in Ottawa giving us an update on what is happening with the Freedom Convoy trial. Tim, as always, we got it in. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You take care, buddy. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Oh, this last word's coming from Becky
3: Thompson, no relation. With all that is happening in the world, it's time to remember everything we have in common rather than our differences. It's time to unite Canada, not divide.